You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. To kick off our Hanaho show on poetry, we have local poet Craig Santos Perez. He released his latest collection, Habitat Threshold, during the first year of the pandemic. It covers themes of eco-poetry, forest fires, species lost, contaminated waters, and the world our children will inherit. The conversation Savannah Harriman Poet called Perez to ask about one of his poems, Rings of Fire. Rings of Fire, Honolulu, Hawaii. We host our daughter's first birthday party during the hottest April in history. Outside, my dad grills meat over charcoal. Inside, my mom steams rice and roasts vegetables. They've traveled from California, where drought carves trees into tinder. Paradise is burning. When our daughter's first fever spiked, the doctor said it's a sign she's fighting infection. Bloodshed surges with global temperatures, which know no borders. If her fever doesn't break, the doctor continued, take her to the emergency room. Airstrikes detonate hospitals in Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan. When she crowned, my wife said, it felt like rings of fire. Volcanoes erupt along Pacific fault lines. Sweltering heat waves scorch Australia. Forests in Indonesia are raised for palm oil plantations. Their ashes flock like ghost birds to our distant rib cages. Still, I crave an unfiltered cigarette, even though I quit years ago and my breath no longer smells like my grandpa's overflowing ashtray. His parched cough still punctures the black lungs of cancer and denial. If she struggles to breathe, the doctor advised, give her an asthma inhaler. But tonight, we sing happy birthday and blow out the candles together. Smoke trembles as if we all exhaled the same flammable wish. This poem is unrelenting. You pull specific locations, specific stories that are in the news, so that the reader knows exactly where they are in time and space. Do you find that when you are working with themes of eco-poetry, you shy away from metaphor because you don't really want to leave that room for interpretation? No, for me, and this poem in particular, I really wanted her to be place-based and grounded here in Hawaii. At my daughter's birthday party, my parents cooking, coming to visit, then also kind of weave that local flavor to the global and bring in what was happening in the news when I wrote this poem. This was about six years ago, thinking about the wars that were going on around the world and the temperatures that were rising everywhere. In that sense, I really did want it to capture that realism of of what's happening. At the same time, to have those associative connections that poetry brings together uh, with such power and force. And 
to have it all kind of culminate in that moment of blowing out these candles on the birthday cake for my daughter amidst all these fires that are going on around the world. Doesn't have a, a lot of figurative language or, or metaphor necessarily, but everyday life has so much meaning already so that I wanted the poem just to draw that out. For our listeners, this poem is broken into two line stanzas. And you have this back and forth between what's happening at this one particular event with your family and what we're hearing on the news, what events we're dealing with all the time. And you play with that a little bit. One line that I really like is when you bring in just after they traveled from California where drought carps trees into tinder, paradise is burning. Paradise a word we are also familiar with, having grown up here, but also a town in California that was lost to forest fires. Are there other examples in this poem that you want to specifically point out where you're trying to get people to recognize things in their own life, even behaviors that they have when you talk about cooking meat or smoking a cigarette and how that contributes to these larger global changes? Thank you for noticing that moment in the poem. That is exactly what I wanted to highlight. You know, these beautiful places, California and Hawaii, experiencing many more wildfires. And, you know, at the same time, when I was writing this poem, there were many volcanoes erupting along the rings, ring of fire in the Pacific. There were these massive heat waves and fires in Australia. Similarly, in Indonesia, they were burning the tropical rainforest there to build these palm oil plantations and the smoke from those fires in Indonesia were drifting across the Pacific. And I started connecting it to other personal catastrophes. I thought about my grandfather who was never able to quit smoking and died from lung cancer. You know, thinking about our diets as well, how much we eat meat, and that contributes, of course, to uh, global warming. And then, of course, war itself happening around the world. And even as we are recording this in Ukraine, again, creating all these fires and smokes contributing to climate change. And so it felt really overwhelming, even as I'm talking about this now. And the poem gave me a space to just try to work work through all of those interconnections to keep living and to keep finding joy in those small moments of you know, a child's first birthday. The other thing that this brings to mind for the reader, and I'll remind listeners that this was a poem that was written six years ago, but when you hear a line like, when our daughter's first fever spiked, the doctor said, it's a sign she's fighting infection. It's difficult to have lived through the last two years and not immediately think of the pandemic. Have you revisited any of your work from this era with the events of the pandemic in mind? As you can see from this poem, my, my daughter has asthma. And so during the pandemic, we had to be really careful and we were really afraid that she would get it. We kept this really tight bubble to try to keep her safe. You know, I really did see a connection uh, between this poem and the pandemic. And of course, even during the pandemic, there's been record temperatures. It seems like every year during my daughter's birthday, it's the hottest in history again. This poem has really stayed with me. And actually my daughter is sick today and she has a hundred degree fever this morning. So we kept her home. It just feels uh, really unrelenting. And so 
in many ways, I'm, I'm thankful to poetry for, for giving me that space to cope with pandemics, wildfires, climate change, war, everything we're, we're living through. You know, I'm just thankful that I have this outlet to, to help me get through the day. Many of the poems in Habitat Threshold do reference your daughter. When you think back to the anxiety that spurs the creativity in this collection, how much of that anxiety is related to being a parent and looking at the changes in the world? So much. Um, you know, I've, I've always been an, an environmental activist and have always written poetry about these themes. But when I became a parent, it became so much more profound and urgent, especially when she was first born so fragile, so completely helpless and vulnerable. And it just felt like every day I was feeling a new anxiety, whether it was her first fever or if she slept on the right side and she ate enough food and so on. But more than that, I started thinking about what planet, what Hawaii, what Pacific is she going to inherit? Something that was kind of a gut punch to me in this poem is, is you present all of these incredible consequences, bloodshed, violence, rising temperatures. And then you have a line like, still, I crave an unfiltered cigarette, even though I quit years ago. And to me, that embodies the reluctance we all feel to change the way we live our lives, to give up things that are pleasurable, even if they aren't good for us. Can you speak a little bit to why you wanted to incorporate that tone into this poem? I think it's important to, to really reckon with how we and myself personally are complicit in many of the environmental damages that are happening now. You know, I used to, to chain smoke when I was younger. I still eat meat, even though I know that's, that's really unhealthy for, for the planet. I have a, a hybrid Prius, but I still drive. And so that also contributes, you know, in poetry for me, it's, it's a space to be honest and vulnerable. And if that means critiquing our own lifestyles, then I think it's important to bring that into the poem. Just in the six or seven years since you first wrote Reigns of Fire and your daughter has, has grown up a little bit, we have seen the consequences of climate change escalate. They're becoming more and more normalized, more violent storms, less rainfall, hotter days, heat waves. When you think of someone like your daughter or someone your daughter's age reading this poem, a decade, two decades from now, where climate change is normal, a changed climate is what we live with. Do you think they'll be able to be sympathetic to that feeling of reluctance we all have now about giving up our way of life? That's a really profound question. You know, thinking into the future, if, if there is still a future in which our, our children grown up are, are reading poetry, perhaps there will still be, be hope left then. I hope, you know, she does look back at, at these times that she would know that at least her dad was being honest <laughs> with himself and that she would know from, from my actions uh, and my activism that, you know, I did, I did fight for her to protect these sacred lands and waters. And, you know, that I hope at that point too, she will be writing, maybe writing her own poetry. 
about the situation then. And I've been so inspired by the youth climate movement around the world that perhaps she'll, she'll be part of that as well. And, and working hard to, to correct and, and maybe even undo the mistakes of, of our generation. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Let's take a moment and listen back to your poem. Rings of Fire, Honolulu, Hawaii. We host our daughter's first birthday party during the hottest April in history. Outside, my dad grills meat over charcoal. Inside, my mom steams rice and roast vegetables. They've traveled from California, where drought carves trees into tinder. Paradise is burning. When our daughter's first fever spiked, the doctor said it's a sign she's fighting infection. Bloodshed surges with global temperatures which know no borders. If her fever doesn't break, the doctor continued, take her to the emergency room. Airstrikes detonate hospitals in Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan. When she crowned, my wife said, it felt like rings of fire. Volcanoes erupt along Pacific fault lines. Sweltering heat waves scorch Australia. Forests in Indonesia are raised for palm oil plantations. Their ashes flock like ghost birds to our distant rib cages. Still, I crave an unfiltered cigarette. Even though I quit years ago and my breath no longer smells like my grandpa's overflowing ashtray. His parched cough still punctures the black lungs of cancer and denial. If she struggles to breathe, the doctor advised, give her an asthma inhaler. But tonight we sing happy birthday and blow out the candles together. Smoke trembles as if we all exhaled the same flammable wish. That was poet Craig Santos Perez reading his poem, Rings of Fire, during his interview with the conversation Savannah Harriman Poet. It comes from the collection Habitat Threshold. legislative season saw successes for minimum wage and affordable housing, while other initiatives were tabled for next time. Besides those hot-button topics, lawmakers also took up a resolution to establish a state poet laureate. The Hawaii Council for Humanities is one of three organizations called upon to run the new program. The conversation Savannah Harriman Poet spoke with Aiko Yamashiro, director for the Hawaii Council for Humanities, about this resolution and the role of poetry in our life. It's so exciting. If you get a chance to read it, I feel like the resolution itself sounds like poetry to me. I'm talking about the importance of art and storytelling and the different diverse cultures and voices that we have here in Hawaii and then what something like a state poet laureate could do 
to help encourage and support all of those things. It's a really beautifully written resolution. What is really clear in it and what I know the three organizations support is this idea that we're trying to establish a program to really activate lots of poets, not just not just honor one fabulous one, which we want to do, but also activate lots of people writing and sharing and reading. Less of the idea that there is this one one very fancy poet who's going to go around and do readings um, and talk about how wonderful they are, but rather one wonderful fancy poet um, who has demonstrated commitment to teaching, to community, to this place over years, and then who will be able to create really awesome community events throughout the islands and get lots of people writing and talking and sharing poetry and feeling the power of that in their own lives. So this idea of poetry as community, I think, is a, a real strong element of this resolution and something that I think the ideal state poet laureate would, would really value as well. Hmm. I like the idea of us as a community naming and deciding upon our fanciest poet. <laughs> <laughs> this resolution has come before both the, the House and the Senate, but it is competing for attention with legislation on the economy, on education, on our continued pandemic recovery, on climate change. And at first glance, it may seem like poetry is not the most important conversation that we need to have right now. What would you say to encourage both lawmakers and the public to pay attention to poetry? I think one of my favorite things about poetry is that it doesn't have to be in competition with these things. Rather, it can be a voice and a kind of heart and a way of thinking and feeling and sharing that runs through all of the things that you named and connects them. One of my favorite lines in the resolution is how storytelling and literature can strengthen civic responsibility and civic engagement. Because when we do poetry, we are thinking deeper. We are kind of expanding our ability to empathize and understand with somebody else. We are building a stronger connection to who we are in our own voice. And then we're also opening ourselves up to each other. And that connection between poetry and civics is really exciting for me. Because I've seen again and again just how poetry in different spaces can strengthen communities. And bring that heart and bring that soul into into really tough issues about climate change. It can bring voice to young elementary school students and help them love writing and share what their ideas are. It can be brought into healthcare spaces and, and help people connect with each other. It can be brought into spaces of trauma. Uh, it can be brought into celebrations and hard things. And I think help people share stories that really matter, share things that they mean with each other and do it in a way where we really also learn to listen to each other. That was Aiko Yamashiro, director for the Hawaii Council for Humanities, talking about the legislative resolution to name a yearly state poet laureate. And that very fancy poet already has company. This May, the Maui Arts and Cultural Center named 18-year-old Kalihua Fung as Hawaii's youth poet laureate. She's the second person to hold the title, and she earned the honor with her poem, Ode to Messes. Fung, a recent graduate of Oahu's Halau Kumana New Century Public Charter School, caught the poetry bug in the eighth grade when she and a classmate performed a class project on consumerism. 
I think there was like a standard that was like taking these trees minute by minute, then told to consume what's made of it. We're taught it's okay to exhaust all our resources, but at what cost? Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you're in the eighth grade. You're picking up poetry for the first time. And you pull together that. I see now why you've been chosen as the the Youth Poet Laureate for Hawaii. I would love to hear the poem that you performed that won you the title. (laughs) Would you be okay sharing it with us today? Yeah. Okay, wonderful. (laughs) I stand in the middle of my room, crumpled up paper, pens, clothes on my floor. Life is messy sometimes. Sometimes you just have to make do with the chaos that you have. Thoughts are like race cars on a track in your head. You are always thinking of what to wear next, what to say to the boy or girl you like, what homework is due tomorrow, what pencil to use, where are your books? Life is really messy sometimes and pretty complex, but you'll get through it. You'll make do of it. Our queen, Liuo Kalani, held prisoner in her room. As resplendent and efficacious as she was, she too was held amongst a mess. Used her tears as thread, her sorrow as fabric, and sewed together the most alluring creation our eyes have ever seen. A quilt birthed from messes. Her pride and love poured into the colors, the memory of her land lingering in her head always. A mess of her people in anguish as a foreign government took over. Their guns labeled power and money, their bullets of hatred coated with selfishness. A mess of probably her own mind. Sorrow and melancholy, despair and desperation, were each planet's probably taking up occupation in the space in her head, but also with her questions came faith and hope, optimism above all others. Tore dresses apart and curtains for fabric, embedded in her quilt is the impact felt from other egotistical actions you see from messes of dresses and messes of others' heads she built. She set her foundation when all else was shaking and storming her quilt. Evidence above all that if you have faith, your messes can turn into beauty, your turmoil to calm seas, your mayhem and chaos to blue skies and gentle breezes. You may not see it yet, but surely it's coming. This is an ode to messes because from it there is redemption, from it there is creation, from there there is even growth. This is an ode to messes because from it the most magnificent butterflies are created. I want to start off with the historical scene you're referring to the house arrest of Queen Leokolani. What was it about that time in history or that event in history that captured your attention? To be honest, a lot of my poems were written on a whim. <laughs> and um, it just so happened that it was Leokolani's birthday. And being a Hawaiian charter school, we celebrated her birthday. We were in like English class, like language arts class. And the teacher just, like, gave me a challenge to, like, see if I could write a poem about Lili'u. And she was like, oh, you know, like, her quilt. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) And so um, it was, it's really hard to hear about what she went through. For anyone, it would be hard to experience that. Like, she couldn't even, like, speak to her people. You know, she was kept in a room, like, in a house like in her own house, she was kept in one room with like barely anything to do. And so like she would have to use like curtains for fabric and dress, like her own dresses, you know, like dresses that should have been in like museums and stuff. Like that stuff was all she had to comfort herself along with like her own words and like her own music. And so I think 
just that feeling of like isolation and not being able to do anything, especially as like being a queen, like, you know, you have all this responsibility and, but I think she was really strong in that and she was really steadfast in like herself to be able to like pull herself through that. I think her quilt is like the biggest thing we have as like remembrance remembrance of that. That makes sense. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think that that can be tricky for people with history, as it feels so inaccessible, and so we can easily distance ourselves from it. But in your poem, you start off by placing the listener or the reader essentially in their own room in a scene that at least is very familiar to me, <laughs> <laughs> feeling overwhelmed by the chaos of your own life and kind of trapped, which is, I think, a feeling we've all become more familiar with as we've intermittently sheltered in place during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What do you think the role of poetry is in fostering empathy? I think it really puts you into perspective. Some of like my favorite poetry has like beautiful imagery and it just places you into the scene so that you can, you know, like close your eyes and imagine that you're there. And I think that really helps you to understand. And I, for one, really didn't think that poetry I'd be good at poetry I, I remember like in third grade I didn't like our <laughs> we had it in the curriculum and we were learning about poetry and I didn't like it because I thought it was like I was not good at it but you know like eventually you'll come around to it and like if you just write out what you're thinking like there's no rules for poetry there's no set boundaries of like what's good and what's not it's that's what's so great about it. It's like just an outlet for you to feel things and for you to process. That was Kalihua Fung, who was just named Hawaii's second youth poet laureate. She spoke with the conversation, Savannah Harriman Pote. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Our next poet is Joseph Stanton, a retired University of Hawaii art history professor. In his decades writing poetry, he's turned his artistic eye toward everything from classic works of art to baseball. And his book, Prevailing Winds, includes a section on poems about birds, including this one, The Last O'o. The Last Kauai O'o. In 1983, in the highest branch of a tree, in a deeply forested place, a male o'o called and called to his mate, ringing tones echoing, echoing, far and far, a quarter mile at least, his yearning bell tolling, the remains of wild kawai. In the pauses between the calling, he was gathering, building the nest his mate would need, building it stronger, building it better, building towards her return. At least once every year, he was seen to try his song, his cry eerie, penetrating. In 1987, his song soared one last time, and then arrived the silence, and he was known to be, at last, the last of his kind. I hear that poem, and I think of where I grew up in Guam, and we hardly have any native birds left, you know. And I, I know a, about that, yes. I had a yeah. friend who, who studied birds, and, and his job was to go out in the forest 
and listen for birds. And he said, it's just really eerie. You go out there and you don't hear anything. Because of the brown tree snakes. Yes, but it, it makes me think of, yeah, this little bird, if he's the last one on Kauai. Yes, and I have a whole sequence here on the uh, honeycreeper birds. He's not a honeycreeper, but the honeycreepers are, um, of course, many of them are already extinct. A few of them are in, in, you know, endangered, but most are extinct. And I have a sequence of poems on those. But I think the, uh, the O'o poem is the most singular, most striking for people. This poem is included in your book, in your latest book, Prevailing Winds. But what got yes. you started writing poems about birds? Ode to, ode to our birds, I guess. Well, I, I actually uh, have, you know, for a long time loved the natural world. I mean, since I was a child, of course, I, you know, was very interested in things like that. So as I started to write poetry again as an adult, I was writing about primarily two things. I was writing about art. I'm an art historian by profession, and I found that to be interesting. And then also, I was just very interested in the natural world. And so I've written a lot of poems about birds, trees, other things. I also decided to start writing about baseball because I have been writing since the 1970s, was writing about small keyed time. And for me, small keyed time had nothing to do with, you know, the whole world of Hawaii because I wasn't here at that time. But uh, my world was wrapped up in baseball. So I ended up writing a lot of poems on baseball as well. So those are kind of yeah, you know, those things, art, nature, uh, with, in which birds frequently star, and then, uh, and then baseball. Of course, within the art category, there's lots of different things. There's not just, uh, you know, the visual art, I mean, in terms of painting, but there's also movies. I'm a big movie guy. I love movies. And so those are all things that are, are of interest to me. I'm also interested in children's picture books, and I did a whole book on that subject of children's picture books. So, you know, just things like like wherever the visual and the literary come together is an area of high interest to me. You have a book uh, entitled A Field Guide to the Wildlife of Suburban Oahu. The reason why I call it Suburban Oahu is because I thought, well, the wildlife that's really important and interesting and in- intimate to us are the um, birds that, you know, and, and insects and plants and so forth that we see in everyday life. I, I was a little bit tired of the way we had a lot of poets coming to Hawaii, you know, Robert Bly or what other famous poets. They're writing about lava tubes or, you know, um, you know, volcanoes or things that to them were exotic. But I'm thinking, well, for those of us who live in Hawaii, we're inter- you know, we every day notice things like centipedes, uh, termites, geckos, you know, as well as the various birds and trees and things. So I thought. What's important about nature is not just, you know, the inspiring grandeur of certain natural things, but just the everyday things that are present to us as we live our lives. And, of course, we're part of that. So in Field Guide to the Wildlife has actually quite a few people poems, including members of my family, because <laughs> we're all creatures, too, right? So, and, and, and it includes, what, cockroaches of the neighborhood? <laughs> Actually, I never did do, there were several people that had done cockroach poems at the time that I was working on this, and I thought, ah, I don't feel like, it just seemed too easy, you know, to do cockroaches, but, uh, so the sections in the field guide book are island weather, and then wildlife of suburban Oahu, which has a lot of particular creatures, and then intertwined on the island, which has a lot to do with the way people of different backgrounds are living together in Hawaii, 
and that's a lot of the people poems are in that section. But you know, so it's it's kind of a, and so I wasn't so much out in the woods, although I was sometimes, but I was kind of looking around me, you know, feeding the birds in the parking lot off my paper plate, you know, as much as being out in the wilderness. You also have that book entitled Cardinal Points, Poems on St. Louis Cardinals Baseball. So it's not the cardinal, the, the red bird that we know, uh, although that is their mascot. But yeah, right. so, so what is it about baseball that grabbed you? Part of it was that I was teaching at UH. I just happened to volunteer for a course called Sports in America. And uh, I shaped that course to my own interest. And because I was doing so much work preparing for that class, I thought, I, I need to find something I want to write about that relates to that class. And I thought, hey, I'm going to write about baseball. And I, I did some, you know, writings about baseball history in Hawaii, you know, the local writing community of which I was very much a part was writing about, you know, their childhood, you know, small kid time. And I thought, well, small kid time for me was baseball. And so I, I thought back to the Cardinals. I grew up in St. Louis. And so I started writing the poems, and I was particularly enthused about the 1964 Cardinals. Uh, that team came back from being like 10 games out of first place to actually win the pennant and then the World Series. And so I was enthralled by that in my youth. I thought that was the wonderful. And so I wrote a whole sequence of poems based primarily on that team, as well as a few older players. And I submitted it to a very prominent publisher of baseball-related matters, and they, they turned it down. I said, well, why are you turning this down? That, you know, this is right up, you know, you're uh, right in your wheelhouse, so to speak. And they said, well, actually, you know, we need a much larger book. Your, your, your sequence is too short. And so I thought, wow, you know. Somebody's actually asking me to write more poems, and then it'll become more attractive to a publisher. So I, I went back and I wrote poems basically for era, every era of the Cardinals from the late 19th century uh, through, at that time, the present, which was the early 2000s. And basically, I organized it according to those time periods. I got photographs from the Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, that were really beautiful, interesting photographs of the various players in the various eras. So each, every so often you encounter one of these uh, photographs as you move through the book. And um, so it became a big part of me. And, and so I've eventually established this relationship with the Hall of Fame where I, I go there every year or two and give a uh, either a lecture or a poetry reading. So it, it became more and more a part of my life uh, that I would do baseball-related things, both prose and poetry, as sort of one of the things I did. We've been hearing from poet Joseph Stanton. We'll have links to his collection, Prevailing Winds, on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. We often hear aloha during times of joy and celebration, but what is its role during times of hardship and adversity? That's something that poet Nou Ravilla grapples with in her upcoming collection, Ask the Brindled. It's the first collection by an O.E.V. poet to win the National Poetry Series competition, and it explores the concept of aloha in the face of colonization and sexual violence. 
Ravilla spoke with the Conversation Savannah Harriman poet about the power of words and the role of poetry in fostering connection. Ravilla starts the conversation off with her favorite poetic form. The sonnet is one of my favorite poetic forms. And there is a reason this poetic form has emerged again and again over the centuries. There is a reason why contemporary poets, not just white, heterosexual, cis men with property are writing sonnets. There is a reason why black, indigenous people of color, queer, LGBTQIA plus folk, women are writing sonnets because it's such a thinking form. The sonnet is an argument. You have to present an idea or an image in those first four lines, develop them. And then there's an octave where you must deepen or depart. And it's such a tight form of repetition and rhyme, 14 lines. And there really is no hiding in a sonnet. I love the form because it really does push you to be honest while making music. And I find that challenge to be illuminating for myself. And are you someone who has gravitated towards form throughout your poetic career? Or did you find the sonnet as your primary vehicle with which to explore a more structured form of language? I am mo'o on both sides of my family. That's a cultural identity that I inherit. And because of that, I gravitate to shape-shifting. So I like to experiment. I like to play. And I think received forms get a bad rap because of constraints, but it's just more things to play with and wrap yourself around. Kino. Your black inscriptions sight a kinolo, whose feathered wingspan, nighttime eyes, and punishing beak comprise mo'oku oho. With my oiled hands, I greet her with hungering for mo'opuna. Mai, she says, reciting from your thigh. Mai, mai e ai. I have traveled from Maui, a lizard, mesmerized by dreams of Ohia and Aikane, lizard filled with smoke. Arrived, I eat, transforming in the forest of your grandmother's memory from lizard, woman, dreaming, licking. Tattoo, permission, land, skin, traveling the night of your kino to sleep your thighs. Ho'au, ho'au, and wake. When you read the poem, Kino, you put this incredible pause, this momentous pause, between lizard and woman, when you think of those two forms, how do they exist together? Do you find that you take on different forms based upon the space you're in and the needs that are asked of you? For me, there's no separation. There are different times where 
the mo'o in me will speak louder. And there are times when the wahine in me will speak louder, but they're in the same body. For OEV, we have three people, right? We have one people to connect us to our akua and our ancestors, one people to connect us to our presence, and then another people to connect us to our future and our futurity, to our mo'opuna. And it's all in the same kino. It's all in the same body. There are different pilina. There are different ways of relating. There are different ways of being and making connections and understanding stories, making stories, but they're in the same kino. It's a relationship more than a separation for sure. X is a verb. When the torch is more crackling pit of skulls and carrying it means Waikiki at two in the morning, grateful, my love. The pitiful karaoke, pink wash and standing room only, we suffered together. Who said ex-lovers shouldn't hook each other by the bra and talk? Like which Venus would be next to make house and tangle with Gemini law? Who with the horns, forward thinking, bright with faith, will grope in darkness and make me a shape at last? Anything but an edge to leap from. Cliff incarnate. We spent months sharing ghosts, our marrow mistaken for medicine. But about this morning, you still haunt me. I still smell burning skin. wonder since you have these two poems both of which are talking about shape making what do you see as the different perspective between them kino was written in the throes of early romantic love x is a verb was written after a romantic relationship ended but our friendship was still is still very much intact and these two sonnets for me point to the different ways aloha emerges in our life. Kino and X is a verb, I hope, celebrate the fact that aloha is not straight, that there is more to aloha than a couple-centric heteronormative script. You know, so what happens before romantic love, after romantic love, alongside it, and my forthcoming book, Ask the Brindled, is about aloha and not coconut bra aloha, not I just got laid aloha, not that cheap thing sensationalized in hotel lobbies and all you can drink catamaran sunset sails in Waikiki. Ask the Brindled, these sonnets are committed to aloha aina as aina based intergenerational and complex. So it's not a surprise that shapeshifters like Mo'o haunt and 
thrive in this book. So for me, Kino was a way to document that even romantic love brings in our kupuna. Even romantic love, especially romantic love, brings in our aina. And X is a verb, testifies to the beauty of friendship that survives, shapeshifts, evolves out of a romantic relationship that is ended. All these things are connected. And the sonnet for me is, is such a great way to acknowledge that expansiveness of aloha. Now, to get to other particular vocabulary in these poems, <laughs> there are two words that we will be unable to air on our live broadcast because the Federal Communications Commission prohibits us from airing certain language. The 1978 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Federal Communications versus the Pacifica Foundation gave the U.S. government the power to regulate language, certain words, due to indecency. Do you think that there is language that can be indecent? Indecent for whom? You know, what kind of language, what kind of speaker is being centered there as the unspoken default? You know, I, for example, identify as gay, as a lesbian with pride, and I also use the term queer. Now, for some LGBTQ plus elders, the word queer conjures up real life memories of violence, harassment, and shame. For others in the community, the word queer is reclaimed every day as a way to forge a community identity, as a mark of pride, even as a way to heal. Now for non-LGBTQ plus folk, the word queer is indecent because it means for them something deviant, something perverse, a thing removed from humanity. And there's an important difference between a word that has been used as a slur, an object of violence from the outside, and that same word being embraced, rerouted, rerouted by people inside the community as a way toward better language, a way toward better names that we choose. Language is a tool. And, you know, just like any tool, it matters how, how you use it. Leanne Simpson is one of my favorite people in the entire world. And for everyone out there, read everything you can by Leanne Simpson. But in one of her more recent works, as we have always done, she argues the opposite of dispossession is not possession, it's connection. And my mind was blown. What a beautiful paradigm shift. That, that appetite we've been trained into for opposites, it's not possession. It's look at the ways we've been dispossessed of each other. Look at the ways we've been told to remove ourselves from each other. And let's get back to earning each other back. And I feel like as the poet, there are so many ways to connect. And I have this way, poetry and education. And I feel that if there is a gay Hawaiian girl 
who can't come out yet for any number of reasons, maybe the same reasons I couldn't. And she picks up my book and she reads one poem and feels less alone. I did something good and not just for me or my ego, that's not what this is about. I did something for our Lahui because the more there are of us standing in aloha and true aina-based complex aloha, the stronger we all are. And I think that poetry combats isolation. When you feel less alone, you love fearlessly, and we need more of that. My name is Nouri Villa. I am an Oivi queer poet and educator. I was born and raised on the island of Maui, and I currently live and love in Palolo Valley on the island of Oahu. To all my mo'o siblings, to all my sly siblings, and if you've read Hanani Kei's Sons, you know who I mean. And to all my queer oivi wahine, I see you. And I believe you. Mahalo. That was poet Nou Ravilla in conversation with HPR Savannah Harriman Pope. Ravilla's collection, Ask the Brindled, will be out on August 9th. That wraps it up for today's Hanaho Show on Poetry. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. The program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. John DeMello provided our backyard intro, and Gypsy 808 recorded our theme music. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us for more of the conversation. Thank you.